everybody, and welcome back to the Illuminati Podcast, episode 205. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by the Wilfred Bramble and Harry Corbett of L.A., Jesse and Alex. I know those names so vaguely. I know I've heard them on a QI or two. That's the best I got for you. I don't recognize them at all. This is the legendary Steptoe and Son duo of Bramble and Corbett, where very different personalities, which ended up undoing their relationship. But they're like, they look like they were like from like the 30s, 40s, maybe earlier. Not me and Jesse, though. We're staying together forever. We're best pals. Aww. 1912 to 1985 was Wilfred Bramble. His life, not his career, right? That's yeah. No, I was being honestly. If he was, that could be both his career and uh, his life. It's like Betty White. Yeah, uh, I guess so. Anyway, he's been in a bunch of stuff. Odd Man Out, uh, the Quarter Mass Experiment, 1984 from 19, the, produced in 1954, uh, which I've read that book but never seen the movie. And Quarter Mass Two. You know, he's been in a bunch. This dude was uh, one of the two duos. They hated each other by the end and broke up though. So, well, shoutouts to obscure UK entertainment history the tone that we always like to start off these horrific tales with for some reason i like come so it's a tone i like to start everything off with okay it's just I, i've noticed yeah you know it, it makes me feel like i'm at home in the uk where they serve brown food which is like the most my favorite everything over in the uk is delicious to me okay yeah i mean i'm with you me too yeah i like it over there and i could get there again if patreon paid us enough money if you'd like if you'd like to send mathis to england so that he can eat all his favorite vinegary, <laughs> oaty, meaty <laughs> treats. A full English breakfast is just nothing better. Yeah. If you head it, get my boy his beans, head over to patreon.com slash Illuminati pod. The Boston baked bean boy. We were looking on the wrong side of the ocean for his companion. It's that Heinz baked bean boy that we need. He's totally straight edge. I think that's like the Boston Baked Bean Boy, like cousin. No, he's totally straight edge and he cannot tolerate spice. That's his thing. I hate that. <laughs> if you guys want more lore posts about the beans, the Chiluminati bean cryptid group, head over to patreon.com slash Chiluminati pod. Uh, that's all that's over there. There's nothing else over there. There's no mini sods. There's no ad free episodes. There's no exclusive art. There's nothing over there except deep bean lore so head over there to patreon.com slash pod to get your premium deep bean lore today roll that beautiful bean footage <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to think of like a good name for this guy like the 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 like loyal legume the loyal legume like yeah because beans are legumes that's what they are not legume lad come on legume lad oh there we go thank you jesse that's why we on. have you on we got legume lad and the Boston Baked Bean Boy across the ocean from one another. And the legume, the legume lad is straight edge for some reason. Yeah. It's got to be like lad goom. Oh, he, he's very, he's all about the, he's all about the, uh, the royal family and, and religion. So, you know, he can't he's be smoking pro, that devil's lettuce. He's pro monarchy. He's pro <laughs> monarchy, I guess. That's the, that's the opposite of Pop the Baked Bean Boy. Kane. Long he live the king. He's like Mycroft Bean Boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the very top, there's a few things. Obviously, most of the information we're getting here in the books are all from interviews with Ed Kemper himself. A lot of what we're learning is from him. And obviously, that comes with the caveat as, hey, he's a serial killer. You know, maybe don't believe every word he says. However, the crimes that he was described and the evidence that the police had lined up to at least at least prove that most of what he was saying about the crimes were true. 
Um, on top of that, uh, a quick addendum from last episode, antisocial personality disorder is not removed from the DSM-5 like I had uh, assumed. They're, I'm mixing it up with something. I don't remember what it was, but that's still in the DSM-5. So that's still a thing uh, that you can get diagnosed with nowadays. And lastly, with uh, in terms of Ed Kemper, uh, a shout out to the two main sources. Again, the co-ed killer and Mindhunter inside the FBI's elite serial cr- uh, crime unit. Both books, absolutely invaluable in learning a lot about why this man was important and uh, how the FBI used uh, Kemper as a way to build their foundation moving forward when looking for serial killers. That being said, a reminder of where we left off last week, gentlemen. It was August 27th, 1964, when Kemper was 15 years old and sitting at the kitchen table with his grandma, Maud Matilda Kemper, who was born in 1897, mind you, when the two of them had an argument. Enraged, Kemper stormed off and retrieved a rifle that was his grandfather's uh, that he'd given him for hunting. The rifle had been confiscated because he had used it to needlessly shoot animals in the past. As we learned last week, he was a man who liked to kill, torture, and mutilate animals. You know, one of the many serial killer bingo marks, a red flag that we see many times. He grabbed that gun, re-entered the kitchen, and then shot his grandmother in the head before moving around to her back and firing twice more into her back. His grandmother's last words reportedly were, quote, Oh, you better not be shooting the birds again. Damn. Before he shot her instead. So, you know, he wasn't, Grandma. He wasn't. And for that, you should be proud. That's growth. Or it's slippage and becoming a worse character. One or the other. I think it depends on if it's fiction, right? Yeah. Yeah, it does. (laughs) This part might be fiction. We don't know because we have multiple accounts that she also suffered multiple post-mortem stab wounds with a kitchen knife. But again, it's mixed accounts on that, so we don't know if that's true. After that was done, Kemper's grandfather, Edmund Emil Kemper, returned from the grocery store, and Kemper went outside, shot him in the driveway next to his car, and then after doing that, he was unsure what to do next, so he called his mom, who told him to contact the local police, which he then did, they walked, uh, and then he waited, the cops arrived, and they arrested him at the age of 15. When he asked why he was, uh, why he did that, Kemper simply said, quote, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma. It's exactly what we were talking about last week. It's just like, you don't really, you, there's a mindset that you can be in where you just don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. it's called being absolutely broken. <laughs> just an absolute sociopath. Uh, Kemper, again, as a reminder was kept in the closet, was ignored by his family. He made friends with rats occasionally because he had nothing else. He killed a cat by burying it alive because he was mad that the cat wasn't paying enough attention to him. And all of these things the family was openly aware of and did really nothing other than continuing to do what they were doing with him anyway, which is just ignore that he existed. All while his father, who was suffering from PTSD from World War II, was just detached. He just wasn't there. And then Kemper uh, went to prison. He was in prison for about three uh, for until he was about 21. Uh, and when he left, he went to go try to connect with reconnect with his father, who he then learned had remarried and had a stepchild and had no way to really take Ed in at this particular point. And it's 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 here that, you know, we also learned that Ed, while a lot of serial killers tend to maybe flounder a bit uh, in jail, with the exception of a couple. Uh, Ed is one of those couple where he was so intelligent and so, uh, I guess you could call it charismatic if what you would call Ed Kemper having his charisma, Uh, but he was friendly enough and intelligent enough to manipulate himself to have positions of power within the mental hospital, including 
going and doing psychiatric evaluations for other patients for the doctors and nurses as a favor. Like that's how much trust that they gave him. So it's in Atascadero State uh, Hospital that he spent his time. His considerable intellect and cooperative demeanor aided him greatly during his confinement, and he quickly learned how to present himself as a model inmate, exploiting the psychologist's desire to rehabilitate him because they wanted this as a win as well to take this monster and be able to actually rehabilitate him and set him free. Um, while simultaneously, of course, he was actually just simply concealing the darker thoughts and desires that were just growing in fire and intensity in his belly. And while at Atascadero, uh, Atascadero, Kemper was given a variety of psychological tests, which revealed his extremely high IQ, far above, above that of a typical inmate. And this unique attribute piqued the interest of prison psychiatrists who saw in Kemper an opportunity for study and potentially recovery. Everybody saw Ed as an opportunity to show them that they can do it, like an award to send out. I think it's just because he's interesting, man. I think it's just because he's interesting. I think people are just interested in a gregarious guy and that they can't believe that he's a serial killer. But you also have to keep in mind, too, uh, you know, we're looking at um, mental health care privatized at this point. Like, you know, no, if it is. So then, like, it's just a government facility just processing through them. but I imagine if they were able to say, like, hey, we healed one of the most biggest, mo- the biggest monsters, they might get more funding on one side or it another. It wasn't the same as how it is now, but it, it was there was there was money in there. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. There was money in there before uh, a particular president gutted it. I, I still see them being a, like a prize. Like I, I see them looking at him. Yes, I think you're right, Alex. There's a huge amount of interest because serial killers are kind of like brand new to the public consciousness or serial killers as defined by calling them a serial killer, not necessarily a new phenomenon in the world history. Um, but, you know, if they can send him out truly rehabilitated, the guy who killed his grandparents, that's got to be a pat on the back and maybe a, uh, a bump in cash. I, I'm just speculating openly here. I'm not, there's no specific details on that, but it's just something that makes sense to me, like why right. they all would want to push him out. However, Kemper, being young and intelligent beyond his years, unfortunately, used all of this to his advantage. He learned to mimic the behaviors and attitudes of the reformed inmates, quote unquote, while easily presenting a mask of sanity to the outside world while keeping his innermost darkest desires quiet and nurturing them. And that's, you know, that's true. Like somebody who doesn't care too much, who doesn't really have any t- in touch uh, with their emotions, watching other reformed in- in- inmates and just parroting them is like the simplest way to do it, especially if you just want out so you can keep doing what you're going to do just to jump in really quick just to make sure that we are absolutely correct on the privatization of please thank you uh yeah so it looks like in the 60s and 70s it jumped from 10 percent were non-federal psychiatric inpatient beds at private facilities and it went from 10% to 35% so huge jump in a decade goddamn yeah yeah and then it just only increased yeah so, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it doesn't give us a full answer, but like potentially, yes. We're in like 1964, 65 era right now. But, you know, that kind of uh, keep that my, thought in mind. Mm-hmm. After, however, uh, in 1969, after five years of being confined, Kemper, now aged 20 and standing at a full size six foot nine, 300 pounds. Outrageous. Yeah, huge. Literally Goro from Mortal Kombat. Was released back into society against the recommendation of the doctors who said, not only should he not be put out there, but you need to make sure he's nowhere near his mother. They don't want him anyone near his mother. 
They're like, he's going to kill his mom immediately when he sees it. They, that's very, they really felt like there was something that was the core of it. And they were very correct. Um, but the psychiatrist had concluded that he'd been successfully rehabilitated, a determination that would later come to regret. And he had convinced them of his recovery, an illusion fostered by his intelligence and charisma. His mother was less convinced, but the law had spoken and Kemper was now a free man. And the speed at which Kemper then commits his crimes is insane. In a four-year time span, he kills eight people. Just rips through them, meaning he has been just harboring this the entire time. Now free and residing with his mother, Clarnell, in Santa Cruz, Kemper appeared to be living uh, the life of an average young man. He enrolled at a community college, began working a series of menial jobs, and even engaged with the socially with his peers to the best of his ability. The specter of his dark past seemed to be retreating, yet this, this illusion of normalcy was soon to be shattered. In the spring of 1972, the news headlines in Santa Cruz began to tell a sinister tale. Young female hitchhikers started disappearing, leaving only the chilling echoes of their last known locations behind. Unbeknownst to everyone, Kemper had embarked on a new, more horrifying chapter of his life. And that's, that's sort of where we ended last week, because remember, he was teasing himself. He was picking up hitchhikers at random, driving them in the ways that they didn't want to go, only to go back and drop them off. All of these things were him kind of ramping up for the actual thing, seeing if he could do it, seeing how he felt when he brought them into these areas and if he still felt like he wanted to kill them. And obviously, he very much did. One of the more striking things and unsettling aspects of Kemper that we also talked a little bit about but didn't address, and we're going to talk about right now, is what also allowed him to get away with this for so long. Ed Kemper, much like John Wayne Gacy, had a phenomenal relationship with local law enforcement. He and the boys in blue were best buds. They got along so well. During, uh, despite him being a cold-blooded serial killer, Kemper was also known for his charm, affability, and these traits he used to disguise his horrifying actions. While living in Santa Cruz and working all these jobs, Kemper became a regular at a local bar called, and I don't miss the irony on this sucker, the Jury Room, a favorite watering hole for off-duty police officers. Well, of course. Of course. You gotta get in good, you gotta get in good with the boys. Yeah, you gotta yeah. get in good. He knew that right from the get-go. He befriended many officers who eventually gave him the nickname Big Ed. Cops just knew him as old Big Ed. I mean, it's easy peasy. And then during an interview, Ed actually called himself a bumblebutt. And he, were, he meant that by just how clumsy and silly he was when he was committing his crimes. Old bumblebutt bumble Ed Kemper. That's just like, he, that's how he referred to himself. Yeah, so the cops called him Big Ed because uh, he st- stood at six foot nine, 300 pounds. He was an imposing figure. Yet, he was known for his articulate and friendly demeanor. He frequently engaged in conversations with the officers, showing a keen interest in law enforcement and even expressing a desire to become a state trooper, a dream, a dream, a dream thwarted by his immense size, which exceeded the maximum height limit for officers. So there was a couple of people who were curious about this. And this is true. This no longer exists. But before 1972, there was a, a lot of office, uh, a lot of police office play, uh, stations or states or whatever had a height maximum limitation. You couldn't be certain tall because I, I assume because of like standardized gear or something along those lines. However, there was a law passed in the 70s. It was 73 or 74 uh, where that no longer is a requirement. However, some police stations like the uh, uh, some of the officers in Texas out here have a minimum height requirement. 
you still have to be like 58 inches tall, I think, out in Texas uh, when I was researching it to be able to be an officer. But yeah, there was height requirements back then. And he was simply too big. Can you imagine if Kemper got to be a cop and how long he would have gotten away with it? Are you kidding me? We may never have caught him. He might have been like the Zodiac Killer, like where he just was like a story of a man who disappeared after time. Fucking crazy. It's not even worth thinking about. It's too fucked up. He frequently engaged in conversations with the officers, showing the keen interest, as I said, in becoming a state trooper. And his friendly relations with the police were such that he was considered part of the law enforcement, quote unquote, family to a certain extent. That's how ingratiated Kemper became with the police. He was part of the officer family because he just just was always there and easy to talk to. It's fucking crazy to me. It's like it's insane. What the hell does that mean? Part of the family. What does that get him? Where does he? Where does he? Where does he go to the barbecues? Is that the vibe? Like- well, the police were way more. They would talk to him about current investigations, things that were happening now. Kemper essentially had a direct line to where the cops had suspicions for crimes, including his killings. He was able to talk to them and know where they were looking when it was happening, so that he knew where not to be. That's crazy. That's what I'm talking about in terms of family. He was just. They, they, he was a confidant. On top of that, Kemper, beyond the casual conversations with law enforcement, he also listened to police radio frequencies, using the information to evade capture during his murder spree as well. So the dude was just, he just had, he knew where all the cops were. He just knew where they were and could avoid them no problem. The inside knowledge of police operations gave Kemper an advantage and helped him stay one step ahead of law enforcement. And this congenial relationship with law enforcement allowed Kemper to live a double life concealing his gruesome activities behind a mask of amiability and charm. Even after his arrest, he continued to exhibit a cooperative and compliant attitude, but we'll talk about that when he gets arrested for the final time. His first victims would be two women by the name of Marianne Pesh and Anita Lucesa. They were vibrant college students looking for a ride home, and instead, they met a fate too terrifying to imagine at the hands of Ed Kemper. And this would be the first crime that was the beginning of a brutal spree that would terrorize the community and earn him the nickname, the co-ed killer. Kemper's method was one of careful selection and brutal execution. He would offer a ride to young women, most often students. Remember, his mom worked at the college. Right. And then led them to a secluded area. There, he would end their lives and then violate and dismember their corpses. Each murder seemed to escalate in violence, signaling the depth of Kemper's depravity. And in January 1973, Kemper would commit his most gruesome of murders yet. However, it was the murder of his own mother that would eventually end Kemper's reign of terror. And that is a, uh, what's so unique about Kemper himself is that, like I said last week, unlike, shall we, uh, Bundy, um, He's one of the killers who was able to get his hands on the person he wanted to kill. Again, displacement killer, somebody who kills people that remind him or are part of. It's like closing the loop. Yep, exactly. And he, in like, uh, you know, Bundy never got to do that. So he just fucking murdered and murdered and murdered 30 some odd women. It's insane. His first victims, Marianne Pesh and Anita Lucezza, were Fresno State students who decided to hitchhike on a fateful day in May. They were on their way to Stanford University, but were unfortunate enough to cross paths with Kemper. He drove them off to a secluded woodland area near Alameda, where he stabbed and strangled them. Afterward, Kemper took the lifeless bodies to his apartment, where he would further violate them, dismembering them in a chilling ritual. He discarded their remains in various inconspicuous locations, and when Pesha's severed head would be later discovered, it sent the first ripples of fear through Santa Cruz. 
His next victim would be a girl by the name of Aiko Koo. His next victim was 15 years old and a Korean dance student who hitchhiked, uh, who hitchhiked a ride with Kemper after missing her bus. Kemper did what he did with the previous two and drove her to a remote location where he, much like prior, strangled her and committed necrophilia. God damn it. He then took her, her body back to his apartment where he dismembered her in the bathtub, disposing of her remains in a similar manner as his previous victims. Jesus. It's important, like most serial killers, Kemper was taking trophies. If you remember, uh, I mean, if we look, go all the way back to um, uh, Tommy Karate, that guy took his jewelry off, off people, uh, took like their rings, money, whatever, and kept it all in like a box in his closet. Kemper's was d- to sever the heads and keep those. That was what Kemper decided uh, that he wanted to do for some reason. And it's... What did he do with them? It depends. Some, we'll get to that if you would like. <laughs> but we're going to get there really. at some point. Um, I mean, I, I need an answer. You can take a guess. You could take a guess. You know what I mean? Uh, it's, it's not pleasant. The man often committed necrophilic acts. So he like had sex with the heads? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like, well, you know, necrophilic acts and some things that are just like beyond just curiosity like taking out eyeballs and slowly removing ears and like just playing with them in a weird bizarre way that is uh almost like a child curious of what he has you know like a just a a curiosity and and a zero emotion to stop him from slicing and cutting and committing heinous acts on these things yeah all right (laughs) (laughs) uh next would be cindy shawl another vibrant student who fell prey to Kemper's dark impulses in January of 1973. She made the error of, esca- uh, of accepting a ride from the seemingly amicable giant. He shot her, unlike the others that he strangled, and took her lifeless body to his mother's house, where he hid it in his room. Later that night, after his mother was gone, he violated and dismembered the corpse much like the others, burying her severed head in his mother's garden, allegedly facing upward toward the bedroom in a twisted act of rebellion against the woman he claimed uh, caused him a lifetime of emotional torment. So yeah, he buried the head in, in a way that it was looking at his mom's window. If it works for him, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, well, I don't sure, think we yeah. need to understand it, because it does sound cuckoo bananas to me, but like... I'm pretty like against the killing as well, but like, you I know... I mean, yeah, well, yeah, you know... <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know you really oh you say you say that okay oh well, that's weird uh yeah i'm against the killing too uh, surprisingly next up would be rosalind thorpe and alice Liu. the final co-eds that would fall prey to kemper were these two women and keep in mind again this is all happening in four years which is why it's very rapid there's no cool down period for kemper like there would be for Dahmer, who spent months in between killings or sometimes even years after his first uh this guy got out of prison and for three to four years just went ham both students were also students at U.S. Santa Cruz. They accepted a ride from him, uh, and in his car, he shot them both and drove past campus security with their lifeless bodies still sitting in his car. And like his previous victims, he repeated, repeated the very same pattern of taking them back to his mother's house, dismembering each body part one at a time with precision and tools meant to do the job now, while discarding the remains of, in, of their body in different locations scattered throughout so that nobody could find them, and if they did, they wouldn't even know what the fuck they were looking at. Which leads us, very quickly, to the final two murders that he would commit. The ones that would close his reign of terror as the co-ed killer and bring peace back to the town where he lived. It was the murder of his own mother, Clarnell, that signaled the end of Kemper's uh, violent actions. And this happened on 
a good Friday, April 20th, 1973. His focus was turned toward the woman he claimed caused him a lifetime of abuse and pain. He walked in the room to, to say something to his mom, and his mom looked to him and said, are you going to talk my ear off all night? I just want to be left alone. Like, she was like, don't fucking talk to me. All you do is ever talk to me. Like, go the fuck away. And he stayed quiet, turned, and left the room. He grabbed himself a claw hammer while she went to bed. Jesus Christ. And then bludgeoned her in her sleep violently. He decapitated her corpse and used her severed head for dart practice and a bunch of uh, necrophilic actions. Sorry, what was that? Dart practice. Dart practice? Yep. He mounted his head's mom and started throwing darts at the head. It's fucked up. I, I mean, it's because it's almost like super villain in a movie comical. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, like what Master Shredder it, it would isn't, do. Yeah. yeah, like, I just, it doesn't seem like something a real person would do ever. No, no. Uh, a lot of what he did, though, like, if you think about it, because we think of Tommy Karate. He, he dismembered the bodies the same way. He would take them to a tub, run the water, cut their bodies uh, up, put them in a suitcase, bury them in the ground in some nature preserve. This guy was doing, you know, the budget version of that, of, of dismembering them in his tub. But instead of putting them in a suitcase, he would scatter the body parts around in random fields and locations so nobody could find them. The man knew what he was doing. And by the time he finally got it, he had built up such a hatred for his mom that even killing her and taking her head off wasn't enough for him. He needed to continue to, de- to uh, desecrate. Desecrate is the word I'm looking for. Thank I you. I got you. And just kept going and going. He fucked with the body. He peeled off skin, removed limbs. He uh, committed necrophilia with their head. Again, dart practice, all of these things. Mm. I wonder if this has to, like, I don't want to be all criminal minds, but I'm very curious. Comparative to everyone else, his seems far more anger-based. Like, even after the fact, he's still pissed that they're just, like, the, the killing them isn't enough. The dismembering isn't enough. It's the desecration where he keeps at it. It's like smogs where he's still on his like, hoard I, of gold. You know what I mean? He's just being a fucking yeah. weird little shitlord on top of his little throne of dead people that he made. Bundy was a more angry man because he would, would torture them in the woods while screaming at them about women and like how terrible they are before beating them slowly with a claw mm-hmm. hammer. I mean, I guess you're right. Yeah. Then sleeping with their corpses and then going back for weeks and like spending time with their corpses and stuff. It, it, this is a singular, like, the focus he has on his mother is, like, beyond even what Bundy had. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, so for these other guys, right, their obsession with sexuality and women and the way women treat them. Oh, yeah. And all that different stuff. Those are way hornier murders. Bundy was a horny yeah, like murder when, man. When it comes down to it at the end, though, you know, after they've killed a person, after they've done whatever to the body, they kind of just, like then move on to the next thing or yeah you know when they they get it out of their system and they feel okay and then they go back to living their secret lives like bundy had a weird family like a lot of serial killers play pretend essentially until they slip up or in uh, kemper's case just finally had enough Yeah, this dude like something about him it's so hard to explain because what he's doing is uh, it's the exact same thing of Picking at like if I had a bottle of water and I drank all the water and then I just started playing with the bottle of water. Yes. And now I'm like twisting the bottle of water. And I'm like, it, it's I don't know, it's not the same thing clearly, but there's something 
there's something mentally going on there where he's taking out something within him on these people who are long dead, who he, I have no idea what it is. I I honestly don't know, but there's something different here. I'm trying to put my finger on it and I just can't. It's almost childish in my mind, like the way he acts and why he acts the way he does. I mean, you could say that about all serial killers, but there's something about Ed Kemper's demeanor and how matter of fact he is about it. And then the after uh, of playing with the bodies in a way that's, like I said, kind of not toddlerish, but still like a curious kid. But he's not like he's not doing it in a way. Like, no, he's just taking out his frustrations in, like a temper tantrum. Bundy, for example, would like lay next to bodies yes, or yeah. like, Dom or two. Yeah. And they would just like it was there's this weird sexual thing with the bodies. Mm-hmm. And it was I murdered you. Like I hate women. I hate the way women treat me. And I murdered you so that I could have a perfect vessel yeah. to be my sex doll or whatever, right? This is, I hate my mom so much that I take out my anger towards her on other women. And even when they're dead, I'm still pissed. And I'm still, like, it isn't like I've liberated you from being. A, the necrophilia isn't horny. It's more of a it's disrespect domination. action. Yeah, it's like pissing Yeah, domination. It. Correct. That's what I'm getting at. Like, there's clearly a difference in the way that he sees people oh, yeah. and the way that he's going to hurt people because it is, it's not like a sex thing. It's like no. a really pissed off anger thing. Yeah. If, remember the first episode we talked about how Kemper eventually saw women as like objects because he was so afraid of them and could never talk to them. So they just became these like meaningless things that he just played with and, and like used for his own purposes for the most part. It's fucked. Yeah. Th- I mean, this is, 100% I've mentioned this before and I'm always going to mention it because it's fascinating as hell that one quiz I took for that college oh, yeah. that was like <laughs> about sex robots and stuff and it stuck with me that they asked a question like would you think that a robot would be something that I don't know someone like this like Kemper would would, would that save people's lives if there was a robot you could hurt but then it would ask you questions like what if that robot had feelings and emotions and or at least synthesized ones? Would that be would you still feel OK if it like screamed in pain? Like and I was like, oh, no, once anybody, I keep thinking about that because in a weird world, it's like maybe if a person had a machine to take their anger out on, they wouldn't take it on other humans. But, but you're, it's not a real world, though, because that's you. You, you hammer on a point that's actually uh, true to some extent already. The people who make those real dolls. They get sent back sometimes like you can like or be found with like stab wounds that are reminiscent of like tearing open the stomach and all these things like they might already be doing like I'm sure it would actually save lives. And if that's what it takes for these people to not go out and kill, then so be it. Yeah. But the question becomes then is it and that's where you get to the different layers and why I found the study fascinating is like, but if it's not a real person, is it the same satisfaction for some it might be for some it might be for some it might not be but, but then are we then training people to become killers you know what i mean oh, are we now saying let me like just put it on my organ donor on my driver's license is like you know you can use me for like serial killer meat i don't care just <laughs> let somebody cut my shit up i don't i don't give a hell i don't know i care i don't want to be serial killer meat <laughs> i don't care but if it because like the unfortunate thing about these these people is like we can't catch them until they start killing people so if getting the doll out into some of these hands and it pre- prevents one person from becoming a serial killer, then it's a success in my eyes because we don't have to wait for somebody to die to learn that he's a serial killer because he doesn't cross that line. Yeah, I also have to believe that there's like a 
80 steps before that. You know what I mean? Like, maybe be a good parent. Oh, well, yeah. Maybe, you know, like, maybe treat your kid well and raise them Here's right. The thing, we don't even know. We, we'll never know because, again, there's already these these life fuck dolls that are getting stabbed and sent back and all these things. Right. So, like, it's happening now. Who knows what it's doing? Here, here's, here's my big takeaway. If we're going to stay on this topic for a minute, I'm going to say this. We should have all those robot sex dolls, mostly because people won't end up having kids and those kids won't be raised by parents who don't give a shit about them. Yes. And that will stop all sorts of problems. So, uh, that, you know, that's also a great solution because Clarnell should not have had a child. I'm just going to say it. No shit. <laughs> just going to say it. Put it out there. So after killing his mother, that wasn't the end. And this is kind of a bizarre turn. And I wouldn't say it turn. It's a bizarre decision by Kemper knowing his motivations. Kemper then, after killing his mom and doing all the things he did with their head, called and invited his mother's best friend, Sarah Hallett, over to the house as a means to provide an alibi. But when she arrived, he's just strangled her to death and left her body in the same room that his mother's was. And after the murders, Kemper fled the state, driving east with thoughts of continuing his murder spree. But after reaching Pueblo, Colorado, Kemper had a change of heart. And walked over to a, a, a phone booth to make a rather faded call, I guess we'll call it. In the dead of night, in a dimly lit phone booth in Colorado, Ed Kemper made his final confession. His voice, eerily calm, detailed the horrific crimes he'd committed over the past year. Wait, so his mom and the friend were the last two? Those were the last two. That says so much to me. It's so, like, narratively sound. He started driving east with intentions of continuing, but something came over him and he was like, I'm good. I don't want to do it anymore. And so in Colorado at night, he called the cops and the cops, knowing Ed is big Ed, didn't believe him. They just disbelieved him, thought he was having a panic attack or something Jesus. was wrong. But uh, finally, they sent They're officers. Like, Come on, big Ed. Yeah, no, really. They were like, they didn't believe him. Um, but they finally sent officers over to Kemper's mother's house where they made the gruesome discovery that validated Kemper's confession to them earlier. And Kemper, unresisting and compliant, stayed on the line, guiding the police through the, uh, the macabre tableau that he'd left behind, and the brutality and horror of his confession were almost too much to comprehend. The cold, detailed precision with which he recounted his actions painted a chilling portrait of a violent psychopath. <laughs> what are you giggling at, Jesse? The way I worded something? I, I, I hope Dean and I are laughing at the same thing. Um, question, yeah. go back really quick. What was that? Uh, you said some words. I think they were French. The Macabre Tableau. The Macabre Tableau. Yeah, yeah. The table of death that he left behind. <laughs> the list yep, of death. The Macabre Tableau. The, you yep, like that? Yep. You like that? I took French in, oh, in school. It. I was forced oh, to take, I, love it. I was forced to take French instead of Spanish when I was in elementary yeah, I school. Tell. For whatever. Oh, I can tell. The Macabre Tableau. That's all I can do. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with that i've got no notes and again this his his very cold and precision instructions of how he committed the murders fit exactly the bother the bodies in the scene that he arrived uh the police arrived at which is part of the reason taking in what he then further confesses to was important to the fbi and the police um so uh after all those things were were caught the detailed precision in which he recounted his actions the news of course eventually broke of kemper's horrifying killing spree and the nation was stunned. The genial, friendly giant known to the local police and community as Big Ed, the Bumblebutt himself, had been unmasked as a monster. And as we always talk about in these serial killer things, people are always surprised 
that the peep, the person who's a serial killer doesn't look like an actual monster. It looks like some nobody that you would not even think twice about. I always, have you ever had the thought, I wonder how many killers I've passed in my life walking on the street or driving? Probably not that many, right? But you probably have I've a few. Never once had that thought. Now what? you put it in my I'm head. Think never about once have I been like, I'm going to think about it a lot now. Yeah, now I am. Oh, I just I never had that thought, Alex. No, I don't. I don't often think about it. To be honest with you, now you should. Okay, the true extent well, of his violent, his violent, deviant behavior came to light, horrifying even the most hardened investigators. Further search and investigation would lead to the recovery of more evidence from his murder, murderous rampage and the scattered remains of his victims found in locations that he precisely described bore mute testimony to his savagery. Each piece of evidence only further cemented Kemper's place as one of America's most notorious serial killers moving forward. Kemper's trial was, of course, a media spectacle. True crime has always been something the people have, since like the early dark ages fucking loved, and this is no different. A harrowing deep dive into the psyche of a man whose insatiable violent impulses led to a killing spree that terrorized Santa Cruz, his confessions, given in a chilling detail, served as the primary evidence against him. His defense, attempting to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, presented a portrait of a man deeply disturbed, plagued by abusive family circumstances, and suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. Again, I reiterate, the paranoid schizophrenia thing is still debated about him to this day, whether he actually had that or not. I err on no, I don't think he did. He's a deeply disturbed man that was plagued by abusive family and, and so on. But so are so many other people in this world who just go on to live their lives as traumatic and traumatized as they b- may be. Most people don't go on to murder pets and then murder other people. It's not a fucking yeah. excuse, especially if you're a man who clearly knows right from wrong. But uh, luckily, the jury was not swayed by his argument, and the graphic nature of Kemper's crimes, coupled with his own cool recounting of them, painted a picture of a man who, despite his mental issues, knew exactly what he was doing. And in November 1973, after a three-week trial, Kemper was found guilty on eight counts of first-degree murder. The judge, expressing his own revulsion and the wish that Kemper would receive the death penalty if it were not suspended at that time, sentenced him to seven consecutive life sentences and he's still alive today he's still up and running in that prison still going his final destination was the california medical facility a prison that houses inmates with long-term medical and mental health needs with the gavel's last echo kemper's journey had finally come full circle from his first taste of incarceration to a lifetime behind bars and contrary to what money expected kemper adapted to prison life extraordinarily well he became a model prisoner, just as he'd been a model patient at a Tascadero. He participated in various voc- uh, vocational programs. And as I said last week, recorded several audiobooks for the blind, putting his articulate and engaging voice to good use. Now, I'm going to give you a sample of one of those books, but I'm going to list you the 17 fucking books this man has actually done audiobooks for. And I think you're going to be blown away. The All very right. first book I'm going to give you, he did Star Wars. Sick. I'm sorry, what? He read the Star Wars book in 1979. That's the ultimate Star Wars old canon book club crossover right there. That was the very first one he recorded. <laughs> that was his first book was Star Wars. Is that available? Uh, you can probably, yeah, I think you could find it. I have a sample from a different book that I found. That's so dark. 
Okay, yeah. Look, I don't know if it's because all of these murders took place in the 70s, the like of late like 70s shit. or whatever, when everyone was caught. But why? We are now multiple serial killers in where they are just obsessed with Star Wars. And I don't know what that means, but I am. There's a correlation that is weird. I don't want to see. I don't want to hear about Star Wars anymore in serial killers besides today. The next book he read was The Rosary Murders. Then he read Flowers in the Attic, Web Between the Worlds, Windmills of the Gods, Dune Book Four, God Emperor of Dune. It, <laughs> he skipped to book four? That's only, no, only book four. He only read book four. That's what I'm saying. He yeah, only, yeah. Read, he he only did book four. four. Yeah, he went to one, four. It says God Emperor Damn. Um, if Tomorrow Comes, Petals on the Wind, The Glass Key uh, as, a, as a Taste. Crazy. So what we're about to play is a sliver of um, Flowers in the Attic. I think it's the opening of Flowers in the Attic. Uh, here we go. Chapter one. Goodbye, Daddy. <laughs> oh, no. Truly, when I was very young, way back in the 50s, I believed all of life would be like one long and perfect summer day. After all, it did start out that way. There's not much I can say about our earliest childhood, except that it was very good. There you go. A little taste of Mr. Kemper himself reading Flowers in the Attic from the 70s. Oh, I absolutely hate it. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't, read, <laughs> you wouldn't listen to 17 more books by him in that voice? No. No? Oh, all right. Scott, color me surprised. I don't know what to tell you. I, I, I was going to, you know, binge all 17 of them after this. Daddy? <laughs> da- <laughs> Daddy? You want to hear that part again? You need to hear that. it one more time? Hang on. We got you. We got you. Daddy? Chapter one. Goodbye, Daddy. Goodbye, Daddy. <laughs> Goodbye, Daddy. Goodbye, Daddy. <laughs> Goodbye, Daddy. Oh, it's awful. Uh, yeah. So that's he was doing that in fucking prison for thirty years. He did that for thirty years of reading books on and off. Um, so you know, further investigation led to the recovery of more evidence. Obviously, as he was on trial. Uh, and the trial would last three weeks before Gemper, Kemper was found guilty on eight counts of first-degree murder. Uh, his final destination was that uh, facility. And the California Medical Facility in Va- Vacaville, a place for inmates requiring long-term medical health care, uh, has 800... It's, it's like a nice place. It's a huge, brutalist-looking like structure with 800 acres. It's stark, cold exterior. It has razor wire fences with a stark contrast to the scenic California coast right where he could see all beyond. Inside the grim walls of the prison, Kemper quickly settled into his new life. In fact, even saying in multiple interviews, he likes life in prison. It's, it's, it's got structure. It's easy. He doesn't worry about anything. And drawing upon his innate charm and intelligence, he adhered to the prison rules, participated in the programs, as I said, and engaged, like last time, with staff and fellow inmates in a seemingly genial manner. And Kemper's affability wasn't his only survival mechanism. His imposing physique of 6'9 and 300 pounds made it kind of a difficult target for people who might want to, like, do something to him. He was still a huge dude, so anybody who was going to attack him had a bit of a difficult challenge. I'm still, like, fascinated about the fact that the last people he killed were the people he really wanted to kill the entire time. and it was done. And then after he had done that... He like he's like, dude, prison's great. I, I'm not stress free. I'm just gonna run this place. I'm yeah. just living my life. I'm yeah. reading books. Like it is. Can you see why he's so? I, I don't want to say vital, but so important, I guess, to how they were able to pull from him because he was very matter of fact. Now, whether he's telling the truth, obviously, he was a serial killer. He's in, he's sure, sure, sure. Everything he about him, like the way after he got caught, 
He just, he, he seemed like a man freed from the burden that he was carrying in a weird way. And I don't mean that in a way to like make him sound uh, uh, better than he was as a man. But it's like the mother, like you said, was just like psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like, because like, because you were saying he went off to go kill more and then he was and like, he stopped. He stopped. You know what? I kind of did what I want to do. I'm and good. that's I'm done. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's so it is very bizarre and very weird. And then when you see what he went on to do for years and years and years and years, we're talking to the 2000s. Yes. What the hell was going on? It's a, you just don't understand what's going on in the person's mind. I guess the psychology right. behind him is, is like, it's unknowable. It, remi- it thinks, makes me think of, remember granny nanny Doss, how her intention initially was to go back to the farm where her mom was sick and her, da- her dad that abused her was like old. And she was like planning on killing him in a way, or we think she was, but he was dead when she got there. And so she couldn't get have that. And she got shut down. I'd wonder if in some twisted world, if she had been able to enact the vengeance on her father that she was taking out on these other men, uh, or just taking out in general, rather, because she was killing babies, uh, would have stopped her because there was that moment where she was going back and then he was just, she was found out the hard way. He was gone. I don't know. Cause Kemper's like the only one off the top of my head who got what he wanted out of the displacement killer people. Yeah. It's so twisted to think that maybe just may, he like clearly is a killer clearly deserves to be in jail, all that stuff. But like psychologically, I'm, you know what? I'm doing great now. Yeah. I'm I, like, it's so, it's such a weird thing to think about that. Then he's just like, I've decided to read books to the blind. And it's like, why are you, what, why are you doing yeah. this? What, how do you go from killing to, I'm going to like spend my jails. Lovely. I love this structure, but also the psychology of this dude finally having a structure and finally having people that are like, a support system even as though it isn't a good support system it is the prison runs like clockwork and so he knows he can rely on certain things in it i don't psychologically this is fascinating i understand why he is such a big deal in sort of like yeah, absolutely this circle of, of uh, in an article that was unearthed in, in 1987 from the los angeles times really shows you how much of a charmer uh, he was even to those who didn't know him, they, the article details like a blind couple who shortly before getting married made a trip to the California Medical Facility State Prison to pay their respects to the prisoners who were participating in the decades-long project of recording audiobooks for the visually impaired. And midway through the story, Crazy. Kemper shows up. Their visit here is so special for us. We get letters of thanks from our blind patrons, but they never come inside the prison to meet us, said Edmund E. Kemper. Third, 38, the inmate who runs the program. Yeah, at this point in, in his prison life, he was running the program. Yeah. Kemper, a confessed mass murderer, has read onto tape cassettes more books for the blind than any other prisoner. He has spent more than 5,000 hours in a booth before a microphone in the last 10 years and has more than 4 million feet of tape and several hundred books to his credit. And that was in 87. Two large trophies saluting <laughs> Kemper for his dedication to the program, presented by supporters outside the prison are on display in the volunteer's prison office, which has eight recording booths, two monitor booths, and a battery of sophisticated tape duplication equipment. I can't begin to tell you what this has meant to me, to be able to do something constructive for someone else, to be appreciated by so many people. The good feeling it gives me after what (laughs) I have done, said the six-foot, nine-inch prisoner. (laughs) This is the exact same. This is why this stuff drives me crazy. This is the exact same. As when, like, dude ate a bunch of people, 
then went to go live a life where people are just like, he's a good man. Yeah. Like that man ate people. <laughs> yeah. The not Boone Hell, Bob Boone Helm and the guy we did previous. Yeah. Uh, it's just crazy to me where, but I guess that's life. Like, I mean, I don't know how to describe this where the people go through different. The person I am today is not who I was 20 years ago. Right. And I wonder if, the same consideration could be given to a serial killer. I don't think it should, but now I'm looking at this like, I know again, a man ate people. And then the governor is like, this guy's a good man. (laughs) Honestly, like this is the worst. The the worst thing about this is that this is like the best case scenario for a serial killer, like the LA, like, no, for like the, like American prison system. Oh, (laughs) yeah. It's like, there's not really like rehabilitation that we, do on mass there's not really anything it's just that ed kemper was done with his killing <laughs> and he turned so himself he in. on his so he on his own just went to jail and just started reading books for the blind yeah it wasn't the cops who showed up like gacy where he had the cops show up he just nobody like got- worked with it nobody worked with him to do this nobody transferred him to a place that was good for him to like get off drugs or like you know whatever nobody like took him out of or put him into solitary confinement he just did this <laughs> he went on to live the life he enjoys which is it sucks it, honest to god it's just confusing <laughs> he's trading he's trading much of his civil liberties away like I said, the next little the next toe in the depth of serial killer pool he's much more he's a little bit more interesting than the ones we've talked about because it's like a weird complexity to him he's like the joker in that from his perspective he probably just is winning right now yeah yeah, I would agree. I think he definitely is. Obviously, he's not doing this because he's a good person, but he now gets to everybody who hates him on the outside has to look at the good he's done and been like and be like, fuck, <laughs> you know, like outside of his issues, which he has in his own way, his own fucked up wrong way handled. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Maybe he is just like, I've always wanted to help the blind. <laughs> I want to be a daddy to the blind. But that's that's what's so fascinating about it is. Clearly what he did was wrong and disgusting and reprehensible. And, you know, taking human life is just a terrible thing to begin with. Right. So you want to hate the guy, but here he is happy and content and reading books of the blind and being celebrated. And it's so bizarre that you can't, I understand why people kind of get sucked in by him. Because I don't know the man, and I'm over here like, I need to know more. I need to know more about right. this guy. I just can't. If people can look at the Menendez brothers and be like, they're innocent. Then I can absolutely see people looking at this guy and being like, well, he might not be innocent, but I get why he did it. Like, no, you're still not allowed. No, no, there's no like, I get why he killed multiple people. But there is something to be said about the span of a life and the different lives we lead over the course of our existence. And that is interesting. It doesn't excuse anything he did, but it's it's the same thing about when like a 14-year-old shoots a kid and they send that 14-year-old to jail for 30 years. Is that 30 is that 30 year down the road kid the same kid that and that's one of those things where look, he killed a person, so clearly he must be punished in some way. But now we're talking about the span I don't know, dude, it's complicated and weird and morally gray no, yeah it doesn't excuse the actions it doesn't excuse the mindset it doesn't excuse any of the behavior 
but it does seem to imply that we should be reconsidering the way that we treat prisoners uh view each other oh, sure and how how our psychology works yes because everything that i've ever learned about psychology uh kind of goes against the way that we think prison works on people well yeah it's not in, in the u.s prison is not re- rehabilitation it is pure punishment in almost all regards unless you're rich it's death by inconveniences and yep. you know and more yeah it's like if say I don't know, five years ago, this is totally random, not at all specific. Like five years ago, you were in a relationship and the girl you were dating totally broke your heart, but like in the cruelest, meanest way possible. And you can never forgive her. But then five years goes by and it's like, okay, I'm not going to get back with you and I'm not going to forgive you. But as a person, I hope you're, do- I hope you're all right. Whatever. I don't care anymore. Like that kind of thing where people, time moves on, people change and like I look at this example and I want to be like, this dude sucks ass and he does suck ass, but here he is trying his hardest to like do something good. <laughs> He's doing what he did when he was in prison as a youth. He's trying his hardest in a way that makes him the center of attention. The prime he clearly enjoys being Ed Kemper, the ex serial killer. He clearly enjoys the fact that isn't it crazy that I'm this ex giant serial killer man and I now read yes I think that's, that's uh, yeah. books for the blind but then he also is reading books I know for but the he's blind. also doing like, it I know exactly exactly <laughs> it's clear that he likes the trophies and he likes the attention but he's also the thing he's doing it, it, it's the exact same thing when you see people fighting on you, YouTube or Twitter or whatever when it's like Mr Beast right just did some insane but he stunt, also did it and everyone's yeah. like either. We hate him because he's doing it for money or he did the thing. It's both. Right. The answer is, yeah, both. you can. It's not that's so black real, and white. That's the real problem. Like we live in a world where money is, is king. In order to do both. something like that, you have to have money. And in order to do something like that, logically, you also have to make money because everything's capital. But then you're exploiting the people that you're filming like that. There's a whole level to it. But then he did help them. You know what I mean? It's yeah. At the end, it's it's exactly the same thing here. Ed Kemper murdered a bunch of people. And he's in jail for it. And the man should never be released. Ever. Ever, ever. And Well, but he is in jail for it. But also, he's reading books for the blind. And those two things both happened. And yeah. that's No it. matter what you think about that's, the mother kill, he killed a little girl at the age of 15 and six other college-age right. innocent women who things. were doing nothing but doing what everybody did back then, yeah. which was hitchhike to school, basically. Like, for that alone, yeah. the man should never be released, period. He did it, but he also did the other thing. That's it. There's not, there's, it doesn't, it doesn't change his standing. It's not about that. It's just that he did one and then he did the other. And that's simply one right. Yeah. One good thing doesn't erase the wrong thing he did basically. But it, the wrong things don't negate the Correct. good he's doing yes. for the blind. They right? stand apart. Exactly. They Same stand thing. apart. Same thing. It's just, and, two it's, and that's what makes it complicated. And that's why I'm sitting here trying not to like get emails from people who are like, are you saying the serial killer is a no. good man? I don't want, please, I don't, please no. don't send me those emails. Yeah. I, that's, I really just don't, don't send them to me. I don't, I don't agree anymore. with that either. <laughs> just at Illuminati. Some will read it. I'm sure. At Illuminati pod. Some will read it. So yeah, the man has recorded hundreds of books from thrillers to romance, to fantasy, to nonfiction. Uh, and in some, like you said, twisted, chilling way, the man who violently robbed these young women of their lives was now giving a voice to authors and stories, providing a valuable service to those in need. That's equally messed up. Like, I'm, ignoring the fact that he's bringing the blind, the fact that this guy is now the voice of multiple books, like, that's insane, too. Like, that shouldn't, if I was an author, I'd be like, no! Right. No! Anyone else but him! 
Obviously, the other thing we want to talk about is Kemper's incarceration also provided criminologists and psychologists a unique opportunity to delve into the mind of a self-confessed serial killer, something they'd never been able to do before. And here was a man of considerable intellect, reported to have an IQ between 145 and 160, who was able to articulate his thoughts and motivations with clarity and precision, and this made him a subject of intense interest and study. Numerous interviews were conducted with Kemper, during which he showed little remorse for his actions. Instead, he provided a detailed, chilling account of each of his crimes, often with a disturbing level of detachment. His insight into his own behavior and willingness to discuss his violent impulses and sexual deviance provided valuable data for the study of uh, psychopathy and criminal behavior. So they, again, you have to take, it's all coming from his mouth, but at the same time, much like the audiobooks, the information he gave them was invaluable to the way they, they tackle serial killers now. And that is still a value to be had. It's not the end-all be-all, and they still have a lot of time. I mean, cops have a lot hard time still finding serial killers. It still takes a, a killer usually messing up for them to get on the, the scent of them. But they are now working with a bit more knowledge in that particular point. Because that's just a scary point. Harder today, certainly. But, it, you know, serial killers shouldn't want to be caught if they're not being driven by straight emotion. It's not that, you know, you can get away with it for a long time. And that shit is because we just have no way to, how the fuck do we track somebody like that? Now we have DNA and cameras and all this stuff. But especially back in the 60s and 70s where it was roaring, there was no way. People just didn't come home. There was no cell phones. There was no text beepers. Your daughter just didn't come home one day. And now you had to figure out what happened. And that's fucking horrifying. Well, Ed Kemper, still alive to this day remains incarcerated at the California medical facility, his life a testament to the darkest depths of what human depravity has to offer. His chilling legacy continues to be a point of morbid fascination for some, a horrifying tale that serves as a case study for criminal psychology, law enforcement, and the criminal justice system. And from the outside, Kemper, the model prisoner, which he is still seen as today, seems far removed from the horrific acts that he committed. All the more surprising for those who learn that this man of of kind of average uh being was this terrible horrible monster his life inside prison walls appears to be uneventful and mundane defined by routine rules and the occasional recording session for audiobooks still yet the enormity of his crimes looms over his existence and should never be forgotten casting a long indelible shadow it's the chilling dichotomy that makes kemper's life in prison a study in contrast the man who once haunted the coast of California, spreading fear, death, now resides quietly within the confines of a prison, an unnerving symbol of the monstrous capacity that can lurk beneath the veneer normalcy of any human. This dichotomy serves as a grim reminder of the dualities of human nature and the terrifying destruction that can be unleashed when these dualities collide. And now you can listen to his voice whenever you want. That brings us to the end. Also, he says, Daddy Gross. And he yeah. says, Daddy Gross. He says, Daddy Gross. All of that brings us to the end of the two-part series that is Ed Kemper. I was able to stick to two parts, as promised. I did, did it. it. I'm proud. Look I didn't us. go to three or 2023, four. 2023, Slim Boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Ed- Never, ever overlong, uh, you know, outliving out, out its welcome type series anymore. No more. Never, no more. Uh, I promise. Um, yeah, and now you boys are your first step toward the deep end of the serial killer true crime pool. Is that what's up? We're going deep after this? You're going deeper and deeper? Well, we're going to slowly go deep. We still got like 
Herbert Mullen to talk about, as we were talking about off camera. We've got H.H. Holmes, which has to happen because that's oh just God. like insane. You, Jesse, please you, do you not are gonna, Yeah, that, that is going to, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to okay, have so I much won't. fun talking about H.H. Holmes. It will be worth you reacting to that live. <laughs> it really will be. Also, uh, if you missed it last time on the mini-sode, episode one, White Woman, Red Stone, uh, episode two of Giuseppe La Rosa and the Order of Me and Naya is uh, the seance is today at patreon.com slash pod in the mini so don't miss it oh shit all right i'm excited and next week it's a guest episode everybody the return oh. of crendor is next week oh my god yeah. uh however you <laughs> oh, said no this my is not god. gonna be uh in an egyptian <laughs> colony in in the u.s i promise this is actually gonna be kind of a history episode i'm excited oh no <laughs> Oh boy. So come back for next week, episode 206, when Crendor (laughs) crashes the podcast for a second time. Uh, Also, part of the Cox and Crendor podcast that Jesse is a uh, big part of. Oh my God, this guy. You you choose to spend (laughs) a lot of time with this man. Last time I was here, we talked about the fact that Egyptians were in America. That's not. Guarded by a single U.S. soldier. The fact. (laughs) One single U.S. soldier. Waiting. I forgot about that. <laughs> On eternal With watch. an M16, baby. One M16, baby. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for watching. We appreciate you. We're off to do the mini-sode like Alex said. See you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, no. Anyway, me and my wife were sitting outside indulging on our porch one night, enjoying ourselves. I needed to go to the bathroom, so I stepped back inside, and after a few moments, I hear my wife go, Holy shit, get out here. So I quickly dash back outside, and she's looking up at the sky in awe. I look up too, and there's a perfect line of dozen lights traveling across the sky. 